Hello and welcome to COPcast from Climate Home News. I'm Megan Darby, Deputy Editor at Climate Home News, and I'm joined by our editor, Carl Matheson. Hi, Carl. Hi, Megan. Hi. What are we talking about today? Well, I'm glad you asked. On today's episode, we are talking about how the mood has changed here in Katowice on ambition. And there will be an interview with leading scientist Jim Ski about 1.5 degrees and the science report that really showed why ambition is necessary. But first, I want to thank our sponsor, the Stockholm Environment Institute. They do agenda-setting research on climate policy and deserve a shout-out for promoting smart women. No manuals for them. For more information, go to sei.org. So, Carl, what's going on today? It's been a really interesting day today, Megan. Uh, We saw last night the Polish presidency uh, of the talks come in and say there's not enough things and not things are not happening fast enough for them so they're going to take over on the talks on the Paris rule book and start writing their own text for the rules and when they did that they uh, nominated a bunch of ministers to work on the on different parts of the talks in pairs but one of the things they left off was a conversation about ambition and ambition in climate talks is essentially a word that means doing more to fight climate change, doing more to cut down on your emissions. So what we've seen is in the day since then, we've seen another pair of ministers nominated from Costa Rica and Sweden to work on a declaration about ambition. And there's been the mood music around that as well. Let's talk about that because Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, he was here last week, then he was off again somewhere else, and and now he's come back um, to just give them another little nudge. Um, We've had the Talanoa Dialogue, uh, which is a a Pacific uh, concept that the Fijians have been um, pushing, of of kind of storytelling to try and inspire action with, with, with stories of success. And that's come to a um, conclusion now with, with a Talanoa call to action. Um, uh, what else? High, Am- High Ambition Coalition? Tell me about that. Well, we're recording this uh, in the afternoon on Wednesday, but we're hearing rumours, um, so probably by the time the listeners hear this, uh, this will have happened. There's the High Ambition Coalition, which made a big intervention in, during the Paris talks to actually drive a conversation about guess what ambition uh is is supposed to be reforming we don't know in what form but in the paris talks they kind of entered the room in a really theatrical way and marched into the plenary calling for greater effort so expect to see something like that tonight and one of the other things that i think is really important to note about this conversation about ambition was it really wasn't on the cards coming here all the talk was about the paris agreement rule book um and this is something that's arisen i think partly because we saw an incredible amount of news reporting last week it was all around the world that countries were here and they were ready to build climate action and when the talks are technical and they're about a rule book it's a bit hard for politicians to take that back when there's so much interest around it so then i think this conversation about ambition comes from that and I think part of the reason why there's so much interest is also because of this 1.5 C report which came from the UN climate science panel earlier in the year in October. 
So I talked to Jim Ski, a professor of sustainable energy at Imperial College London, who leads the um, intergovernmental panel on climate change work on how to limit global warming. Um, he spoke to us about what it's like when science and politics meet. The special report on 1.5 degrees dropped in October and really caused quite a splash. Were you surprised at how much it, of a reaction it generated? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think we were very surprised actually because it's probably the biggest impact that any IPCC report has ever had. And in some ways it's because it was so well flagged in advance. You know, the, the media was out there waiting for it to come. And so the, you know, the TV crews and the, the people with microphones were, were all ready to ambush us as we, we finally got out of the room. So, but you know the way that the way it was picked up, and it wasn't you know page three or page four of the newspapers. It was it was headline stuff, New York Times editorial. You know that. So you know you've made it when you get that level of impact. So, th so there's a huge amount of consultation and iterations, and I mean there was a surprising amount of new p material actually as well, wasn't there? New literature in such a short space of time. Yeah, I mean. The scientific community was also ready for the report in a sense, you know, as soon as uh, the UNFCC issued the inv invitation at Paris, it took about another nine or ten months, you know, for IPCC to formally agree to do the report. And then by that time, uh, you know, already people had, you know, assumed it would be approved, it would be carried out and they'd already started on the work. But some communities were able to turn around faster than others. I mean, the, the big global modelers of the so-called integrated assessment modelers who are kind of in the, the working group three space could turn around their models very quickly. But the big earth system models that take about as long to run as it takes to produce an IPCC report, obviously you can't turn these around at the same speed. So you had to rely on the, the older uh, models for that. And, and let's sort of break down some of the terminology here, because um, working group three, so you're really focused on what it would take to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, is that right? Yeah, we, yeah, mitigation means basically cutting emissions or increasingly adding sinks so you can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, which the 1.5 report has placed very firmly on the agenda. So that's what we're doing. So working group three, three people produced the pathways of, of emissions, uh, basically, and then did the dive in to understand what kind of things could you do to achieve these emission pathways. You know, the mixture of things in the energy sector, a bit of land, etc. And, and this is where you report back to the politicians and the negotiators um, about what the science can tell them and how it can inform their policy making. And the one question that, um, that I think particularly China uh, very clearly put to you was, is 1.5 degrees feasible, uh, yes or no? And, and I think the answer was there isn't a, isn't a binary answer. But talk, talk me through how you, um, how you judge feasibility and what goes into that judgment. Right. Uh, to be very clear, we started from day one on the assumption that we were not going to answer the question yes or no, whether it was feasible or not. What we did was to break, break it down into six kinds of different conditions that would need to be met if uh, 1.5 degrees were to be feasible. And we started with the most physical things like, you know, the geophysical. 
and basically the conclusion is yes it's possible to do that uh, because uh, we're not yet at 1.5 if you shut emissions off today you would stay below 1.5 then you get into the other issues technical feasibility economic feasibility which is starting to get more ambiguous so we can show it can be done technically you would start to want to debate the economic issues because you would have to retire a lot of plant early high polluting plant early in order to get to 1.5 degrees and then the final conditions are societal and political will and we can't answer that that's up to government so that's why we said at the end of the process we've told you the scientific material the next step is societal and political will over to use negotiators and politicians and uh, and for china i mean you're saying retiring plant early that's that's really saying to to china you know are you willing to shut down coal plants before the end of their technical life um, because that is what it would take we don't identify individual countries that's that that is uh, your ipcc practice but in the globally yes you would need to shut shut plant down and let's break down behavioural change as well, because um, uh, you know this involves things like the, the food system, right? Like how much meat people eat, and um, you know what what kind of behavioural change would it would be involved in um, in getting to 1.5? Well, that that depends. I mean, one of the things we clearly did say there's no single way of getting to 1.5 degrees warming. We identified a number of different pathways with different backgrounds in terms of socio-economic development, which included different assumptions about how diets might change. So in, in scenarios or pathways where um, people are prepared to make these kind of behavioural changes, there is much less reliance on technical fixes on taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere later in the 21st century. On the other hand, if we continue as we are in terms of lifestyle, it means the only way to get to 1.5 is to have recourse to quite a large amount of carbon dioxide removal. And what we were trying to do was to highlight the choices that policymakers faced without advocating any one specific approach. And, and what about um, the people who just don't want to accept the outcome? So, I mean, Saudi Arabia, in, um, you know, in the final meetings where you were finalising the wording of the, of the summary for policymakers, um, was you know, saying that, you know, we can't accept this and that. And, and just in the last few days, you've had the um, very uh, significant Polish um, trade union solidarity, um, you know, getting in cahoots with the Heartland Institute and saying there is no scientific consensus on um, the causes and response to, to global warming. Um, so, like, what do, you, what do you see your role is in, in sort of combating misinformation and how do you respond to that? Yeah, com combat isn't the kind of word we would use for IPCC scientists. We have to be much uh, more di diplomatic than that. I mean, just to say, when we got to the plenary session to sign off the summary for policymakers, what came out was agreed unanimously by all the governments that it was an accurate reflection of the underlying report. So that, that was it. Every country agreed to that. And at every stage, I mean, there were certainly changes made to the text you know, as we went through, and in most cases it improved it because uh, negotiators sometimes know how to communicate better than scientists do. But at every stage when a change was made, we had to turn to the scientists and say, is this still compatible with the underlying science? And we are scientifically assured that the summary for policymakers is faithful to the science, but also all governments have now signed off to it, or you to say it's, it's a good reflection of the underlying science. So uh, that's where we got to. 
and I'm afraid anything that went on inside the plenary room is something we don't actually comment on. I mean, you can read the minutes when they're eventually published, but uh, not, for, not until they are published. Yeah, well, I, 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 mean, I think there was a technical summary that came out and my favourite bit was um, where Saudi Arabia questioned the evidence base for something to be told that there were like a thousand studies that, uh, that supported it or, or something, something like, like that. But, um, uh, but, but, I mean, here in, in Poland, um, and, and the reason perhaps the motivation for a, a group like Solidarity in, in rejecting the idea that, that, that a scientific consensus exists is, um, you know, is this attachment to uh, an economy based on coal. And I mean, how, like, you know, you, you kind of try to arrive at positions through a kind of reason process. And, and how do you sort of engage with people on, the, on these very sort of emotive issues about, um, about belonging? I mean, ju just to say, I mean, we didn't say, we didn't recommend a 1.5 degrees target on these pathways. We were asked a question by the governments, if you were to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees, what would it mean in terms of emissions? And we answered the question in a scientific way. We're not advocates in IPCC. And uh, I mean, just to reflect, I know that, you know, different trade union movements in different parts of the world are treating it differently. I'm actually just been appointed as chair of a just transition commission in Scotland, which was actually been inspired by a collaboration between the Scottish trade union movement and Friends of the Earth Scotland, who actually want it. So n it's not the same in every, every part of the world. I think the biggest challenge of, you know, of the report probably comes to the coal industry, because there, there's a very clear message that in all of the pathways that we looked at is that coal use for electricity generation would basically vanish in all scenario, all pathways that were compatible with 1.5 degrees. And I think that's, that's probably where the issues are. Where, where I am in Scotland, we've actually exited coal uh, and actually the issue is oil and gas now rather, rather than the coal part of it. That's it for this COPcast. I've been Megan Darby. And I'm Carl Matheson. And thanks to our producer, Soila Aparicio. Don't forget to follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes and all other good podcast apps. Uh, Climate Home News is on Twitter and Facebook, and you can subscribe to our newsletter by going to www.climatechangenews.com. See you tomorrow.